Now, it's a duty that we take with, with great seriousness uh, here on Blueprint to to gaze long and hard upon the surfaces of our contemporary culture, at the beat-out buildings, clothes, interiors, or, or, or the food that we eat. Now, this this rigorous interrogation of the seemingly superficial has, I think in recent times, revealed something of a pattern, uh, whether that's greyish interiors, uh, camel cashmere, nondescript accessories that signify obscene wealth to those in the know, Bland, minimal, often monochromatic, understated uniformity. Uh, it is it is the trend du jour and one that we have extensively documented on this program. Check out many stories on the ABC Listen app for proof of that. According to my guest, this, this is a trend increasingly apparent also in the world of food. Jill Duplay is a food writer, restaurant critic, cookbook author, culinary editor of the AFR magazine. And she joins us now to, to discuss the scourge of kingfish crudo uh, and other, <laughs> other ubiquitous staples of the modern Australian Our menu. Our old kingfish crudo oh, carrying know. this terrible label. What an honest and dutiful fish it is that it should come to such an end, Jill. Well, that's the thing, Jonathan. Um, it is a beautiful fish. It's a great product and we should be very proud to have it. It's really well harvested, well produced, and it's very consistent. And for the, all those good reasons, it's also ubiquitous. When, when did you notice that this was a thing? And I think it, having, having said it, having brought it to our attention, uh, you, suddenly you, you realise that, yes, of course, it is on every menu that I've seen for the... <laughs> <laughs> the last goodness knows I know. how long. Well, that's the thing. And I guess we're talking about, you know, um, midi, medium to premium sort of dining. Mm-hmm. It's not happening in cafes, but it's going, it is going quite broadly across the, the dining scene. Um, I guess I sort of, it, it grew on me during 2018, 2019. It, Kingfish itself had been around since 2002 when it was launched to the the chefs of Australia. And I think then what happened is pandemic lockdown. And when we came out of it, it just seemed to be on every menu to the point where I would pick up the menu in a bright, fabulous new place that I was excited about eating at (laughs) and I would just start laughing, you know, because it became more an exercise in, oh, how are they doing the kingfish crudo this time instead of, oh, look, kingfish crudo. (laughs) Something you mentioned there, which is something of a distraction, but it's intriguing and I think part of this, this, this story and it won't be obvious to people outside of the business, but you, you say there that kingfish was, was sort of presented to the, the chefs of the country. Mm. How, how does this happen? What, what, what is that, that inner world here in which products are promoted uh, uh, into, into the kitchens of our restaurants? Well, that's a very straightforward and great Australian produce story where uh, the investment goes into building... what do you call it, an industry, and then the marketing and it's decided that this is a product that is better marketed towards 
the chefs than it is to the consumer Mm. and that has been their strategy and it's worked very well for them and in fact it's it still remains their their biggest market is chefs and of course export and chefs have this wonderful way of uh what would you call it sort of reframing a product in their own way and in their own voice so that it is, even though I am observing the ubiquity, I'm (laughs) in a way also celebrating the extraordinary myriad ways in which they do it. Um, However, to get back to that, uh, post-pandemic, post-lockdown, As we know, the hospitality industry suffered greatly. It came out of it reopening but changed. Mm. And I think you may have observed dining out, especially in that first 12 months, the menus were smaller, shorter, tighter. Um, Their costs had risen. Their labour costs had risen. So it became important for chefs and restaurateurs and hospitality operators to really reduce the variables, reduce the overheads and stick with quite a few tried and true products that they knew could be consistent, that they knew they could afford and that they knew people liked. So is it Kingfish Crudo? (laughs) What are its companions in the the, uh, the (laughs) catalogue of ubiquity? It does have a few. It does have a few. I remember the very first time that I slid my knife into the white globe of burrata, this wonderful sort of ball of mozzarella with curds and cream inside, and sort of gasped as as the curds and cream ran out over the tomatoes on the plate. It was really quite a thrill. It had novelty um, value once, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, 300 times later, perhaps not. Now it really, you know, it's essentially a creamy, bland product. So, again, it behoves the chef to really make that work. So, again, I now look with suspicion at burrata on a menu because that is, you know, equaling the – it's just below the kingfish crudo. But I now use it as a bit of a test – what has this chef done to mm. ignite it or to contrast with that passive uh, lactic quality? And so, for instance, uh, blood orange season at the moment, if you see a burrata with, let's say, blood orange and rosemary or you see it with a really salty rosemary-scented focaccia or something, go for it because you've suddenly got a, a complete dish. But, but but yes, it is, and you'll see it. You will see it. It's out there. I, I think we should perhaps introduce a a, a, a menu bingo, and people can fill their cards. <laughs> oh, we do that. We do that. Um, I'm married to the chief restaurant critic of the Sydney Morning Herald, Terry Durack, and I know we both pick up the menu at the same time, and we just we go bingo. But but I know I know what you're having. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I know what you're having. So the thing that Basically, comes... he's having the, the um, suckling pig or <laughs> the uh, roast duck or the duck confit or if there's a sausage around, uh, it's Terry's. You mentioned duck and that's another. I mean, people will have noticed in the, the last few years that suddenly duck is, is also omnipresent. Yes, and that again is a fantastic Australian produce story because we have – 
young farmers out there who have decided to concentrate on really good old heritage breed ducks Mm. and, you know, do it properly and, again, target the chefs rather than retail and put it through that way. Uh, They're premium products. They come at quite a high price, so you don't want them to go to anyone who's going to mangle them. And they're coming through to us and some of the chefs are just going berserk with these dry-aged roast ducks and doing spectacular presentations where it comes by on trolleys, the, the system of tableside service known as Garadon, and it's carved at the table and it's, you know, immaculate, mm. crisp, almost caramelised skin and then this melting duck flesh and it, the oh, fat is all rendered <laughs> and it's, you know... It, I certainly am not complaining that duck is on a lot of menus because it reflects uh, what the specialty um, produce supplying. Yes, what, what what is wonderful and available, and I'm 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 imagining as you speak to a, a whole lot of door to door marketers with little suitcases full of various descriptions <laughs> of flesh with, with <laughs> a duck bill hanging out. Yes, no, I think right. not. No, um, but that's the other thing that's happened, and I guess has also squeezed the choices a little bit. Is with increased labour costs mm-hmm. and chefs having to like keep an eye on interest rates and us, the, the consumers, keeping an eye on our spending, they need to actually work out, okay, let's say they take the duck, they'll take the whole duck, they'll use the whole duck, they'll make it all work, yeah. they'll uh, confit the duck, they'll preserve the duck in some way so that they can do that as part of their mise en place, as part of their um, production process, their preparation process, they don't have to suddenly turn around and cook duck and require the labour that's the trained staff to do it in the middle of service. So you do see right now a lot more salumi, prosciutto, uh, salami. You'll see Uh chicken liver parfait because that too is um, something they can do ahead uh, when it comes to desserts, panna cotta set already in the fridge, uh, creme brulee set already. Um, so yeah, so that so the pandemic and the and the uh, economic sort of um, outlook has had its influence uh, and is being reflected on the menus of uh, of Australia. The thing that sort of popped in my mind is this idea of of you know, this commonality in menus was, and I think here of, say, a French bistro, uh, and mm. how, how many generations of French people have been entirely happy with a pepper steak and a creme brulee and, and, exactly. and, and not in any way, you know, discomforted when that appears on the menu of every place that they go. <laughs> Uh, well, is, is every French different? bistro that well, they indeed. go to because right. French cuisine is as broad and wide. Um but, yes, that's a given, that's part of their culture and that's uh, understandable and, and we adore, we all adore the offerings of a French bistro. In Australia, we're, we won't call it a French bistro, we'll call it modern Australian, but you will recognise many of those staple products of a French bistro within it. The other trending but uh, unspoken trend is the steakhouse you will go to a brand new modern Australian bistro, restaurant, diner, and but essentially it's a thinly disguised steakhouse because, again, 
they know what people want and they're mm. going to give it to them, of course. They need to stay in business. So there's that conjunction there. I mean, you, you've spoken about the, the pandemic and, and as we know, the, the, the wafer-thin margins that apply in, in the business of restaurants and the economic pressures that apply there. So that's one driver of, of trying to keep things in this this tight parameters of, of, of certainty and, and limited choice. Mm. But is, is that something which also suits the diner? Yes, of course it is. Um, we, know, we know what we love, we know what we like, and I think at the moment, you know, if you're a bit worried about the school fees or you're having that special night out, you're not actually going to study the menu and go for something you've never heard of just for the mm. fun of it and mm. to test the creativity of the chef. I suspect not. You may well go for something that you find it more difficult to cook at home. I think that's a great strategy when you're, you're dining out. Why, why would you order something that you can cook at home? You know, many people can't, just don't have a fantastic charcoal grill for a steak. So they should go to someone that has a charcoal grill and have the steak. If you, if you have no idea how to cook roast chicken, you should order roast chicken when you go out. But I, I think you can, and we do, stretch it a bit to have something interesting. But we're not going to drop $38 on a a small dish of something that we can't even pronounce at the moment. You speak of this with, with some optimism, I think, but is, is there a, a counter sense here in which there's a, a flattening of everything in play that, that produces a, a, a sort of a levelling, a kind of mediocrity? I, I certainly, I, I don't call it mediocrity because what our offerings are are all very good. It's just that lack of excitement uh, in terms of change and really pushing the creative edge. But there is all – I, I was thinking about this and, and I believe since I uh, have explored this, many people are thinking about this ubiquity of certain dishes, uh, but no one was actually saying it out loud. <laughs> and, oh, and then I came across an article by Alex Morell um, in the UK called The Age of Average. And before I even read it, I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about Spotify. He was talking about algorithms. Mm. He was talking about how if we like something on social media, we get rewarded. They will do the same thing. We will like it again. We get fed back what we like. And I guess, um, you know, because I can, I'm a writer, I can run with a metaphor for about three weeks <laughs> without stopping. And that is my parallel to um, talking about what the chefs are doing in restaurants in Australia. It's sort of an algorithmic levelling to dishes that they know we would like. Not all chefs, of course, not all, uh, and it's not all high-end dining either. Um, I might just say I love cafes. I could live in cafes and never go to a restaurant again in my life. But have you seen a breakfast menu lately that has had anything new oh. on it other than eggs, bacon and avocado? We see, I'm a terrible person with breakfast menus that I simply want the eggs and the toast and all this other stuff. <laughs> Goodness sake, what are you doing? It's breakfast. <laughs> yes, I think if you go out once a week for breakfast in a cafe, I think that's fantastic. Okay, if you're going yes. out every single day, perhaps not. Perhaps not so much. I was at a cafe this morning 
playing in Western Sydney in Penrith and I walked in and looked at the menu and, yes, they were all there and they all looked pretty nice and then I saw it, cinnamon toast. Oh, yes, please. I know. I I was in paroxysms of delight (laughs) eating this beautiful sourdough toast, heavily buttered with salted butter and completely showered with cinnamon and sugar. And I raced up to the chef and I said, what's your ratio? What's what's your ratio? And he said, one kilo, (laughs) one kilo of caster sugar to 50 grams of um, cinnamon. So there you go. Interesting. I've tried to try no, to... but uh, but I have never seen cinnamon sugar on a menu um, since my mother used to it's, do it when I was a child. That's, that's so very very. I want to reward decades. that. Yes. You know. <laughs> well, the, which makes me wonder too. I mean, this this idea of of menu uniformity. Are there historical precedents for this, or have we reached some sort of point as a you know, are we, are we exhausted in some some respect by experimentation? Are we sort of trying to settle into the familiar? <laughs> um, it, look, it has, I think, for every generation, probably every decade in hospitality, there have been those certain dishes. But this has been, you know, it's like taking a, a, a litre of sauce and reduce it. The, the pandemic has reduced that sauce to mm. about, you know, 100 mil. It, everything is concentrated. And so we see the differences so, and the contrast so much um, uh, more easily now. So I don't know. I think the other thing that has happened is the ownership of restaurants has changed over the decades as well. You know, when I started eating out in the 80s, it was often Ma and Pa um, opening the restaurant and running it. It was quite personal. It was small. It was independent. And now you'll find a lot of restaurants are owned by restaurant groups. A lot of them are funded by investment um, and property groups. So they have a different sort of uh, remit. They have a different brief to fulfil. They're not going to scare the customers away, uh, but as you would hope, there are random mutations of crazy <laughs> young chefs opening their own places again post-pandemic, and they are sort of disruptors in a way, and they are trying to really be true to their own voice and uh, not replicate the menus and the attitudes of their predecessors. Hmm. And so here we go again, the next generation, the next garden bed of green shoots growing that are going to feed us for the next 20 years. And they need something, they need something to rebel against. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's That's perfect. Don't we all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you get, um, uh, if I could draw attention to one chef who is in Sydney, but who is who is having an, a national, if not global, effect, and that is Josh Nyland, who has a restaurant called St Peter and a bistro called Petermen, and he is a sort of evangelist for fish, including, of course, kingfish, mm. but he has a completely different attitude to it that I just haven't seen before, and it's so successful. Basically, he thinks of it and treats it as meat. So you can go there and have a kingfish bacon uh, with your (laughs) egg and toast for breakfast. You can have – I mean, he does some wacky things too, 
uh, because he insists on using every single part of the fish, including the eyeball. But essentially, you, he, the last thing I saw him do was take um, a fish and do it as Chateaubriand. So it's, it's this huge, large format uh, fish that he can treat with the utmost respect in a very large serve to share amongst four, and it comes with all the accompanying dishes and sauces. And I mean, that's almost going back to Victorian times. You know that, that that's a fantastic uh, disruptive way of treating something and looking at something anew. Jill, thank you. I, I, I'm tempted to ask you to, so the listeners can spot this in their own leisure, the, the Jill Duplay typical menu of Australian mid to upper level dining would include such elements as? Well, you would start with the kingfish crudo, preferably with something wonderful like uh, uh, Davidson plum. You would definitely move on to burrata. If you love the richness, you'd have a chicken liver parfait with some little toasts or what is very um, de rigueur at the moment is uh, sourdough crumpets with your uh, chicken liver parfait. And then I think you'd probably have duck confit and you would have potatoes with that and then you would finish with tiramisu. It sounds quite perfect, really. Actually, it sounds delicious, <laughs> doesn't it? And the good thing is it's out there for everybody to enjoy on every single menu. <laughs> Jill, thank you so very much and, and thank you for your service in the, uh, the restaurants of this country. Well, I can say very genuinely it's a great pleasure for service and chatting to you today. Jill Duplay, uh, food writer, restaurant critic, and uh, the food food editor, the AFR magazine, which is where you will find the piece um, that, that inspired this conversation in which she charts the story of how Australian cuisine came to repeat itself somewhat. We'll put a link to that on the Blueprint page of the RN website. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.